Good morning. I'm Matt. I'm one of the pastors here. It's great to see you. If you're new with us, uh, welcome. Uh, Open a Bible uh, to Psalm chapter 1. We are getting into a new series on the Psalms. And as the great theologian and poet Bono has said, uh, the Psalms are a place that challenge us. Uh, It's a place where we discover a God who listens and a God uh, who asks of us that we listen and demands that we are honest. All of those are challenging realities. And, And these three questions, the questions of who is God? Who am I? What am I being challenged with? Are three fantastic questions to wrestle with as we spend the summer in the Psalms. Well, we are calling this series Psalms the language of faith. Uh, and that uh, is because that's what we find in this collection of 150 ancient Hebrew poems. Who is excited to spend their summer studying ancient Hebrew poetry? All right. So good. You're going to learn about parallelism and chiastic structure. It's going to be awesome. Uh, So not today, though. Today, we're just going to get our feet wet with a fire hose. But yeah, Uh, so we're calling it the language of faith because that's what we find. We find in these 150 poems and prayers, this talk to God that's rooted in trust. They're mainly prayers. Sometimes the Psalms are wrongly called a hymn book. It's actually it's more of a prayer book. There are some hymns, but they are all prayer for the most part. And so prayer is conversation with God. We're looking at the Psalms to deepen our conversation with God, to grow a language of trust. How many of you, when I say conversation with God, immediately have a rush of confidence and you think, yep, got it. Don't need to grow at all there, right? Me neither. So the Psalms are going to help us. They're going to help us move further into understanding the language of faith And they're going to give us examples of what a life rooted in faith, expressed in prayer, looks like. And it might be different than we would assume. Two observations, real quick, on what the Psalms are. What are we dealing with when we look at the Psalms? The Psalms are two things. First of all, the Psalms are poems. It's a collection of poetry. It's one of these interesting places where we get this collection of Psalms, uh, of prayers that are at first mankind's word to God that are turned into God's word to mankind. It's an interesting place in the scriptures. The Psalms as a collection of poetry reminds us that faith, first of all, is a human thing. That the poetry reminds us that faith involves our emotions. It involves what we're feeling. It comes from the stuff of life. It's not sanitized. It's it's human. It's messy. It's emotional. The, the poetry of the Psalms stand so often in contrast to the language of the church, right? That church talk is not the same as what we find in the Psalms. Church talk is nice, right? It's so polite. It's so clean. It doesn't, nobody ever feels like challenged. No, no, it's it's nice here, right? Well, that, that just means it's dishonest, usually, right? And so, it's nice, it's clean, it's sanitary here. Uh, it's, it's like, sometimes I think, church talk gives the impression that Christian life is a romantic comedy. Jesus loves me, this I know, we're done. End of story. Church talk is notoriously inauthentic. But... The language of faith found in the Psalms is desperately honest. It's real. It's in search of the truth no matter how ugly the truth is. Right? That's what we find there. 
But it's honest in ways that are very different than the world's kind of honesty. Uh, The talk of the world, in contrast to the talk of the church, gives emotions the final word. Church talk gives emotions no word, right? Religious folks, we want to push down those emotions. We're scared of those. We've got to get the right answers and the right behaviors. The world, on the other hand, irreligious folks tend to exalt feelings as final. There's no no right to, to agree with or behave as, so we can let how we feel just rule. But the Psalms, the language of faith, offers us a very different path. It challenges us on both fronts. It's a way of expressing our emotional world without giving our emotions the final word. That's what we find in the Psalms. Instead, what we get in the Psalms is wrestling our way toward trust. And it results in praise. Because God takes center stage, not our feelings, although our feelings are present. That's the second dimension. The first dimen- or that's the first dimension. That the Psalms are poetry. The second dimension is that they are prayer. So on one hand, we have to deal with the fact that we are human. On the other hand, we are dealing with God. Right? The, the Psalms, the word Psalms, literally comes from the Hebrew word tehillim, which means praises. They are oriented towards God. They, they are not trite praises. They emerge from the stuff of life, but they're aimed at the God who gives and redeems life. The Psalms are the Bible's prayer book. So after four weeks exploring the art of neighboring, where we are propelled by the gospel into the world to be a redemptive presence in our relationships, right? after four weeks there, we step back and look at how really we cannot be a redemptive presence without a redemptive relationship. And see, the sustaining a redemptive presence in your neighborhood requires that we sustain a conversation with God because the art of neighboring is born from the art of conversation, first with God. And so we're offering a challenge or pathway for us as a church. We're offering a reading plan. You can get the Psalms read by the end of August. And we've got a nice little journal here for you. And it's available in the lobby for five bucks, which is a steal because it's this rad journal. It's got this cool little intro and it's got a reading plan. If you are type A, this is your deal because there's check boxes. If you're not type A, this is your deal because there's blank pages. So it's... It speaks to you, whoever you are, okay? And it's a great way to just be immersed in the language of faith for the summer and write down what you see and journal your own psalms, your own prayer along the way. So, um, what are we dealing with with the psalms, this poetic prayer book? Well, the the Psalms are a collection of 150 poems. Everybody usually attributes them all to David. Well, they're about half David, right? It's not just David that wrote them. King David wrote about 73. 49 are anonymous. We don't know who they are. Others were written by guys like Asaph. Another group, a famous worship band called the Sons of Korah, wrote a bunch. Solomon, Moses, Ethan, Haman, a whole bunch of folks. They, um, by the way, are not random. When we get into the Psalms, sometimes it looks like, how do they all relate? Uh, there's an interesting structure to the book of the Psalms. It's arranged in a, as a five-book uh, work, uh, and all five books 
end with praise. Uh, the first four books end with the same line. They end with, may the God of Israel be blessed forever, amen and amen. And the final five psalms conclude the entire book. They conclude it with this repeated phrase, hallelujah, which is a compound for praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. And so it's this very exclamatory end to what the psalm have psalms have been saying all along and so they're arranged by theme and uh the first half feels like life's a bummer right it expresses prayer through the language of lament if you don't know what a lament is it's basically just a form of language where we say life's a bummer things aren't the way they're supposed to be and we talk about it right and then somewhere in the middle the the majority of the psalms shift from being lament to being praise. That this life of faith, this language of faith, this process of moving through our laments does result in praise when we journey that out with God. And so uh, that's what we're going to find and that's what we're going to wrestle with over the next however many weeks. So let's dive in with Psalm 1 and 2. As you can see, they're set apart. They are an introduction to the whole book. They are not... Uh, designed to be read necessarily as book one, but as the introduction to book one and the rest of the Psalms. And you will see why in just a moment. Psalm one. Are we ready? Let's do it. Stop, stop talking about the Psalms. Let's get into the Psalms. All right. Psalm one. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law, the Torah, the instruction of Yahweh, and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For Yahweh watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against Yahweh and against his anointed saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. So I will proclaim Yahweh's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. You have now been introduced to the Psalms and where the book is going. Let's dive in. One of the things you will notice immediately is that if you are a hyper-literal person, the Psalms are going to stretch you a bit, aren't they? Because now people are like trees and kings are smashing pottery and 
There's imagery and there's metaphor. And the reality is the Psalms stoke our imaginations. They get, they get us to wrestle, to become perceptive to God's reality through the imagination. They get us on the inside of the truth. And so the poetry gets us wrestling. Eugene Peterson says this about the Psalms. He says, people look into mirrors to find out how they look. We look into the Psalms to find out who we are. So when we look at what's going on here, we know that the Psalms uh, are poetic and we know that there's imagery. But how do we know that Psalm 1 and 2 are meant to be taken as an introduction set apart? Well, let me tell you. Look at Psalm 3. Flip forward in your Bible. At the very top, after it says Psalm 3, there is a little italicized sentence that says, A Psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. Look at Psalm 4. It tells you that it is for a director of music with stringed instruments. A Psalm of David. Psalm 5. For the director of music. For pipes. A Psalm of David. Psalm 6. For the director of music with stringed instruments. According to Shimoneth. A Psalm of David, right? It even tells you that tune to play. Oh, yes, right, a Shimoneth. I'll play it according to Shimoneth. I know what that is, right? You're all like, what the heck is a Shimoneth? I don't know. I didn't learn that. All right, so what are those called? Those are called superscriptions, right? Technical geek term for you, little italicized things at the top of the Psalms are called superscriptions. And so every Psalm in Book 1, that is Psalms 3 through 41, have superscriptions. They're about David, and all of them have it except for Psalm 10 because it's linked to Psalm 9 and Psalm 33 because it's weird. But the first two, right? The first two, sometimes that's the best technical answer in the Bible. You're like, I don't know, it's weird. Okay? Um, Psalm 1 and 2, however, don't have superscriptions. It jumps right in. Blessed is the one, and it ends. Blessed are all. Okay? They don't have the superscription. What we have instead is we have a wisdom psalm, Psalm 1, which is about if you want to live a wise life, if you want to live a life that's like a tree that bears fruit, if you want to be wise, read this. Psalm 2 is a royal psalm. It tells us about a king. Right? And so that it's forming this introduction that's saying, look, there's a wise king who wants to give his wisdom. If you want to live a wise life, if you want to follow God, then you need God's instruction and you need God's authorized ruler. And that is where the book is headed. I just told you the entire message of the Psalms in two Psalms, right? It's about his instruction and about his king. And so these psalms go together, right? To say that it's not instruction alone that you need, right? You also need a king, right? If you want to live a deeply happy, wise life. Think about your kids for a second. If you have them or if you've had them or if you know some. How does it go when you just hand them a book and say, figure it out? Right here, read this manual. It's about how to be a human. Please pay special attention to the laundry portion because I'm sick of it. Right? <laughs> how well would that work in your life? They would just be like, I don't, know, I, I, I don't. What do I do? Right? Because instruction without relationship doesn't lead to wisdom and it doesn't lead to joy. And God is saying you need the instruction of God and you need a relationship with God as your king. Right? Because your kids don't figure out how to live life on a manual. They need it modeled. They need truth embodied for them. And when those things happen, when they have instruction in the context of a relationship, they become wise people. And that's what the psalmist is saying. There is a, the instruction of God paired with the God as king 
will form you in a way that brings deep happiness and wisdom. Psalm 2 says you need a king. You need the instruction of a king. So already we have a problem, don't we? As modern readers, we're listening to this and we're going, okay, I need instruction and I need a king. Right? This is like the last thing that we want to hear as modern Western people. We want information so we can make our own choices. Right? And so we have all the information we want at our fingertips any given moment. And we love to make our own choices. But the Psalms aren't playing that game. He's saying, the psalmist is saying if you want to gain wisdom for life, you have to live under a ruler who's a refuge. And you have to have his instruction because it steers you away from disaster. So let's get into exploring how these psalms work together. There are four words, four words that glue these two psalms together that show us that they're one cohesive message. Let's look at the first word. The first word is the word blessed. It's the word ashray in Hebrew. Psalm 1, 1, blessed is the one. And Psalm 2, 12, blessed are all. Blessed is the one who doesn't walk in the way that sinners walk in, who delights in the Torah, and blessed are all who take refuge in the king. Um, Ready for another geek word? All right. I'm not convinced. Are you ready for another geek word? All right. Okay, good. Okay. Told you you're spending the summer learning ancient Hebrew poetry. There's going to be some geek words along the way. Okay, so this forms what's called an inclusio. It's a literary term for basically a bracket. Okay? So Psalm 1 begins with the bracket of blessed, and Psalm 2 ends with the bracket of blessed. Right. And it's telling you, read between the brackets, because everything in between the beginning and the end is about how you find that bracketed blessing. Okay? That's what the psalmist is doing. He's showing you how to find what he's talking about at the ends of the brackets in between. Okay? Now, um, everything in the middle is about how to be deeply happy. Okay? Ashray is a word for like happy are. It's a beatitude like Jesus when he says blessed are the, those who are poor in spirit. He's saying deeply Fundamentally, joyfully, eternally happy are those who recognize they're spiritually bankrupt. Right? It's like this irony. Jesus is like, what? you've got to pay attention to the upside down kingdom. The psalmist is saying the same thing. He's saying, look, the deeply happy person, not just like American happy, but the deeply Hebrew happy. Okay, there's a difference. There's a contrast. The American vision of happiness is all about what you have. It is material blessing. The Hebrew vision of blessing is how you live. It's uh, moral blessing. Okay, do you see how we have this backwards in our culture? Right? Can you think of any examples where we think that the one who has the most power and stuff is the happiest one? Right? And do we see how bankrupt it is? Yes, right? we have to see it. In fact, if you are getting any, uh, any preaching that's telling you uh, in a sermon that God wants your life to be blessed in a way that's not challenging or doesn't incorporate suffering... You just need to turn them off, all right? Because they have not taken Jesus into account. Jesus is the one who is blessed over all, and they killed him, okay? So there's some suffering involved. It is not primarily about material blessing. It's primarily about the presence of God and his favor and what it means to be in relationship with him. So blessed is the one, and blessed... Are all the one who refuses to walk, sit, and stand with the right, uh, wicked, and the ones who take refuge in the messianic king? Here's the good news for you guys from this section: 
God wants to bless you. That's the good news. God's really oriented towards blessing you. He wants to bless you. He wants to move towards you. And he wants your life to be deeply satisfying, fulfilled, and happy. He wants to cause deep joy in your life. Here's the challenge. His blessing, even though he wants to give it to you, doesn't come automatically. It just doesn't. It doesn't come automatically. God is not simply in heaven zapping out blessing rays. Like pew, 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 pew. It's not passive. It doesn't work like that at all. The biblical picture of blessing works like this. The biblical picture of blessing is that it's a gift from God. It comes from grace and capital A-N-D. It works with our choices. It's the result of our choices. It's a gift and result of choice. It's a gift of God and it's a result of choice. I'm sorry. I know. It's not, I, I know that wasn't what you were hoping for. I know. Right? It's confounding to all humans, okay? Human, humanity across the spectrum, it doesn't work like this, okay? You, you have the folks on, on the far left of life that want God's blessing to just simply be a gift. You don't have to make any choices at all. You should just have it. There are people on the far right who go, it shouldn't be a gift. You should work really hard to earn it, right? And so, right, that, it doesn't really matter what side of the spectrum you're on politically, spiritually, Biblical blessing is grace and human partnership, okay? Always. And so it challenges us in every direction. Anything besides that is a distortion of the biblical picture. And so there's this picture of the, the wicked, the one who throws off God's way. They say, I, I don't want your instruction. I don't want your kingship. And the psalmist says, that person is like chaff. It's a picture. It's an agrarian picture, right, of tossing up at harvest time, you'd toss up the grain and the like husk around the grain, the stuff that you'd want to pick off, the stuff that you can't really eat, it's of no value to you. Instead of hand picking it, you toss the grain up and the wind literally blows the the chaff off. It just blows it away, right? So, and then the grain just falls back down. The weighty stuff, the substantive stuff, the stuff that you want falls back to the ground. The other stuff blows away, okay? And so, Psalm 1 is a wisdom psalm. It's saying, if you don't want your life to be like chaff, if you want your life to amount to more than nothing, right, then don't live like the wicked, right? You can be like a tree. You can have thriving, uh, abundant fruitfulness because you're placed by a water source that is abundant. Psalm 2 has the kings of the earth. They're raging and they're rebelling against the divine king and they are choosing the way of chaff. So the, the two psalms present a big if question to you and I today. It's like there's blessing if. There's blessing if you run towards it. Which brings us to the second word. How do you run towards it? How do you run towards his blessing? God wants to bless you, but it's not automatic, so how do you run towards it? Second word is meditate. It's the Hebrew word Hagah. Okay, you can say that with me. Hagah. Whatever. I'm telling you, blessing comes through participation. Okay, uh, so it means... To chew on something, I'll come back around to it in a second. The blessed person meditates, hagaz, on the law. When you read law in the Old Testament, 
Don't think traffic code. Don't think rules and regulations. Think instruction. Law is the Hebrew word Torah. It means instruction or teaching. It's about a way of life. And so the blessed person delights in God's instruction, which is an affective loving word, right? Christians tend to focus so much on the how, the skills of how to behave, that we uh, shortcut the want to, right? Because we're focused on the how to. The how to is good to get to, but it only matters if you have the want to. And the Psalm 1 is saying the blessed life starts with a want to. Are you with me? Did I confuse you? All right. You're, you're cool. Hang in there. All right. So, you meditate on his instruction. We delight in what God teaches. What's the word, what's the deal with the word meditate, right? You hear meditate and you think like, well, uh, isn't that like the thing Buddhists do? Like, do I have to light candles and wear yoga pants um, to find blessing? No, you don't, right? The Eastern, Eastern med- meditation is really, uh, it works like this. Empty out the clutter, get rid of the clutter, desire nothing, give up your attachments, right? If you give up your attachments and don't desire anything, you won't be disappointed and you'll be very, very happy, right? Because you're never, you don't ever not have what you want. Because you don't want anything. And so, uh, right, just sit there in your yoga pants and wait for meditation. Okay, somebody's going to come to me later and I'm like, I'm not knocking yoga, it's good. But, hey, biblical meditation runs the opposite direction, okay? It runs different than emptying. It's about filling. It's filling my mind and heart with God's thoughts. Now, there's emptying the junk. That's important. We do need to empty. But you only know what's junk when you fill your thoughts with God. He needs to evaluate what's junk. Don't get rid of the stuff that isn't junk. And so, instead of giving up attachments and dialing down desire, we meditate, we haggah in a way that dials up our desire for God and His kingdom. That actually increases our attachment to God and His ways. Here's, here's the deal with this word for Haggah, for meditate. Haggah, it means, it's actually something animals do. It's not even, it's not even just about like intellectual exercise of focusing on words on a page. It's actually about an appetite. The word Haggah is used in the Old Testament of a lion thinking about his prey, salivating over what he's about to eat. Okay, like birds Haggah over food, lions Haggah over prey, uh, your dog. Hagaz when he has a bone, right? Salivating, chewing on it, just enjoying it, savoring it. Uh, and so we are encouraged to do the same, to chew on God's instruction, to dwell on it, to digest it, to delight in it. Blessing is a gift, but it's not automatic. It's not a drive-through reality, uh, but it's a slow, steady flow of habits for life. And so the blessed person considers what God has said and they allow it to shape them. Uh, One thing we have to learn here is that God is for you. He wants to bless you, but he will also move in relationship to the choices that we make. If we choose to avoid what God has said and avoid his uh, and reject his instruction, then the God who loves you will move in relationship with you, right? He won't force his way on you. In Psalm 2, we see that God laughs, he scoffs, the rulers are rebelling, and God's like, he sits back, he's like, okay, like, that's, if you think you're smarter than me, like, there's nothing I can do to help you, right? And so, uh, we can be removed from the place of blessing. Hear that today, right? Our choices can move us away from blessing. The place of blessing is always relationship with God, nothing else. We get in trouble when we think that the place of blessing is anything other than right relationship with God and others and the world. 
It's not a retirement plan. It's not six figures. It's not that guy. It's not that girl. It's not the corner office. It's not the house. The place of blessing is always in relationship to the Lord. And so what's the person who meditates on the Torah like? Who meditates on his instruction? The Psalms say that he's like a tree or she's like a tree planted by streams. It could also mean transplanted by streams of water. The picture is you're in a desert, right, where water is scarce and you're transplanted as a tree and put next to great irrigation where you're surrounded by uh, abundance of water. The picture is you have a life that's not wiltering, but it's watered. And so the one who delights in the Torah is like a tree whose source of life, hear this, whose source of life is outside of themselves. See, the big idea here is the path to blessing is outside of us. It's in God. Uh, It's tempting to want to find blessing just in myself. If I just look in long enough, I'll find deep, deep happiness. And the psalmist is saying, you'll be a withered piece of chaff unless you find a source outside yourself. Then and only then will you bear fruit and live a vital, fruitful life. In season is the word the psalmist used. That means that that bearing fruit and living a blessed life is a lifelong thing. It's not a mere moment, which is a challenge for those of us who are into instant gratification. Now, I think that here in the Northwest, this imagery of a vibrant tree has lost its power on us because we take the metaphor for granted a bit, right? Like, we have plenty of healthy trees, too many healthy trees, and I got to get them out of my gutter, right? Uh, And so... uh, we, we're, we have this project happening at our house where we are replacing the deck in our backyard with a, um, a concrete patio. And the, the reason we had to replace the deck was because there had been a great big tree that had just thrashed the deck. It was all warped and bent and it was messed up because there was this giant tree uprooting the rest of the deck. It was just too strong. And so it's been my firewood for the last winter. And... Uh, and so as we're undoing the deck and getting into the base of that tree, it took four men, three strong men and myself with a sawzall, right? And like, it was massive. It took us like 40 minutes, all of us just in there prying at it. I'm chopping at it and, you know, basically just saying, what do I do now, guys? Right? And uh, it was awesome. But the thing was, right, a, tr- a thriving tree sinks its root system deep. It's not easily uprooted. That's the point. You see, it's the total opposite of chaff, which can't even withstand a gust of wind. See, when you're not rooted, when, when you don't have a source of life that's outside of yourself, guess what? You're at the mercy of whatever is happening to you. And it stinks. You have every reason to be anxious, right? Because what's about to happen next if you have no root system. But if your roots are in the Lord, if, if your source of life is outside of you, if it's anchored into what he's done and what he's said, then guess what? You can take high winds without being moved from your foundation. And you don't have to be anxious. You can not be afraid with good reason. Are you with me? Do you see the need to meditate on what God has said, to allow it to be our source. Psalm 2, 1 uses the same word for meditate. It's hard to see in English. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples 
Hagah in vain. Why do they plot? It's a word that's used as a contrast. Blessed is a person focused on God's ways, but those who meditate against God, whose focus of life is how to throw off His rule, that's a dangerous game to play. Right? The perspective that says, God's put me in a box, I want to throw off His chains. Right? I'm going to throw off His yoke, literally. You can think rebellion thoughts or you can think instruction thoughts. It's up to you. God wants to bless you. It's not automatic. You can be like a tree or you can be like kings who are just chaff. The third word that glues these psalms together is the word way. It's the biggest metaphor in the psalms and proverbs. The way is your path, your direction, your road, the way in which you are oriented as you walk through life. The way is used here because God's blessing doesn't happen in a moment. It happens on the way. It happens in route. It's a poetic, pictorial way of describing a life full of choices, full of patterns and dispositions. It's not just one decision that forms your life. It's many decisions. And so the blessed person watches their way. Notice what the text says about the way of the wicked. It says, be careful. The blessed person chooses not to walk in step with the wicked, not to stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of those who mock God. Notice that there's a direction from moving to stationary, right? The wicked person starts out walking, ends up sitting. I think this is interesting because it's the way sin always works in our life. It's the way rebellion always works in our life. We start off with this idea that I can kind of test it out. I I mean, let's let's just see how it goes. Like, it might not be that bad. Um, I think it's okay this one time. I can always turn around later. That's walking into sin. But then it moves really quickly into standing. We're just really accustomed to this. This is normal. Everybody's doing this. This is just okay. It's okay. And then you land sitting. It's your habit. It defines you. You're stationary and you're stuck. And I don't say this to say if you've got places in your life where this is happening that you're hopeless. I'm saying this because Psalm 1 offers a hopeful warning to say this is the nature of sin. It moves from walking to sitting really quick. The question is, do you have any places today where you're trying out some of the steps of the wicked? Where you're thinking, I, I might be okay for a little bit. Or maybe there's some places where you're standing in the way of the sinners, right? Where you're feeling comfortable in it. Or some places where it's just become a settled attitude and a settled habit. Where you're sitting now in it. The psalm gives a warning. It says that the person who's ordered their life by their own instruction and by their own rule will ultimately have a life that deteriorates. And so there's this tension Right between Psalm 1 and the other psalms. Where the psalmist is saying, look, I've watched my way. I've paid attention to Torah. I've obeyed and my life feels like it's withering. Right? We put this tree up on week one for a reason. Because there's an image of a beautiful, blessed life. But by the time you hit Psalm 3, David's on the run from his own son. Right? And the rest of the Psalms feel like this tension, right? What, what about the tree in Psalm 1? Because now my bones are wasting away. My tears are my food. Day and night, I'm crying out to you. I'm not sleeping. My enemies are after me. What happened to the tree? And so the reason the word way is important is because blessing 
is not all about a moment. It's about a life trajectory. Okay? And so the Psalms teach us patience in persisting in eventual and ultimate blessing in spite of what may be going on. Because blessings deposited in route. The final and fourth word that glues these psalms together is this. It's the word destroy. It's not necessarily a good news word for us at first glance. Uh, the word is abad. It means destroy. It's a visual for death, annihilation, and perishing, right? That the way of the wicked leads to destruction. That those who reject the Messiah, the King, will find their abad, their destruction. By their own way, they destroy themselves. It's the result of choosing a way that rejects God, right? Because the reality is this. If I reject the giver of life, I'm ultimately embracing my own death. And that's what the Psalms are saying, that there are two paths before us, a psalm of blessing and a psalm of deteriorating destruction. And Psalms are about leading us in a path of wisdom and life, focusing us on His Word and on His King. The question for us today is, can a follower of Jesus destroy their life? Can a follower of Jesus destroy their life? What do you think? Heck yeah, they can. And I wish it weren't true. But there's so many conversations where I'm having with people where I realize this is a... This is not a warning conversation. That would have been a few years ago. This is now, let's look for redemption on the other side of destruction. And that's a bummer. Because the reality is God lets us wreck ourselves and he lets us wreck others. I wish it wasn't so. And the difference is the focus of our life and the way in which we walk, how attentive we are to the direction we're going. You see, you can be like a tree or you can be like chaff. The difference is, will you hear his instruction? Will you be ordered by his king, his ruler? I can't think of a more relevant book for us to get into right? in an age that is self-indulgent, self-focused, and into instant gratification because the Psalms offer us a path of hope, right? a way, a way from destruction, a path that embraces the ruler of life. So what way are you traveling today? See, Psalm 2 is meant to be read with Psalm 1 for a reason. Psalm 1 offers this picture of this ideal person, right? They delight in the Torah. They're like this awesome tree. And we're not like that. I'm not like that, right? I look at Psalm 1 and I go, I'm not that ideal person. But there's a king who is. Psalm 2 talks about a king who is appointed by God as Messiah, as anointed, as a delivering ruler who crushes the powers of injustice like a clay pot. That's an easy thing to crush when you're powerful, right? I found at the end of last summer this Lauren's favorite flower pot had been crushed and we like, who can I punish for this? I'm like, I don't know, probably happened in June, right? Like, I don't know, but it was easy for whoever did it, right? And it's as easy as crushing a clay pot Uh, is for us, as it is for King Jesus, to bring an end to injustice. But here's the problem. Injustice is still around, isn't it? Injustice hasn't been shattered like a clay pot yet, has it? We still see it all around. And so, therefore, you can still turn to the king as your refuge. Because he hasn't come to finally bring an end to injustice. 
in this season, there is a refuge for all who are willing to quit their injustice. See, what do you need to experience God's blessing today? It's simple. You need his instruction, which is a source outside yourself, and you need him to come into your life as your leader, as your king, as your ruler, and submit to his rule. How's that good news for us? Let me tell you. Psalm 1 has the ideal person, and, and the rest of the Psalms reveal we're not that. Right? We're human. But Jesus is the ideal person. He's the one who walked perfectly, who delighted in the Torah, who lived it out and embodied it perfectly. But instead of getting blessing, Jesus got curse. Instead of getting honor, he was shamed. Instead of getting what he deserved, he got what the rebellious kings deserved so that he could become our refuge. See, that's the solution to a world full of rebellious king wannabes. It's the installment of a king who runs his kingdom through grace, who's conquered injustice by allowing it to do its worst to him so that he can stand in our place and offer refuge to rebels who are willing to quit their rebellion. That can be you today. This is the gateway to the Psalms, friends. It's about hearing his instruction and taking refuge in the Messiah as we wrestle through life. So the blessed one then delights in the Torah because it points us to our ultimate hope, which is Jesus. And we're blessed in the sphere of relationship with him and with him alone. Ephesians 1 says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us. There's that word again, in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. It's in Christ that we are blessed. So how do we respond? Quite simply. We have communion. It's also known as Eucharist. It's a word that means thanksgiving. At the table we have bread and we have a cup that symbolize Jesus' own death for us. When he stood in our place and he got the destruction that the wicked deserve and offers instead the blessing that he deserved. He offered his body and his blood freely. And so we come to the table eucharistically, right, with gratitude to say it's nothing I bring, it's nothing I earned, it's simply my blessing, my life, my way is simply your act of grace inviting me in not on my merit, but on yours. And so I receive it with gratitude and I'm going to allow it to shape how I live, to reignite my desire to delight in his instruction, to be ordered by his rule. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending your son. We thank you that he is our king who is not ultimately our threat, but our refuge if we are willing to turn from our own rulership of our lives to your rulership of our lives so that we might be wise and fruitful. We pray, Father, that you, as you draw us to your table, would make us more rooted in your grace, less like chaff, more like the tree described in Psalm 1. We know that that pathway is through finding our roots in your grace and your saving work. And we come towards you now to receive that with gratitude. Amen.